The Guardian. Nova is America's most watched science series. You'll find it every night at 7.50 on PBS. Sky Channel 166, Virgin Media 243. PBS, where television matters. I'm Dan Sabbath, and coming up on this week's Media Talk, the Nevison Inquiry gets underway. We analyse the first week of the investigation to press standards and media ethics. Also in the podcast, EMI has sold for a song. Well, two and a half billion quid. We look at the sad demise of a very British company. Plus, 11 million people tune into ITV's I'm a Celebrity. And... Okay, what have you got for me this time? Trust me, I'm the Doctor. Doctor Who heads to Hollywood. It's all coming up right here on Media Talk from The Guardian. We'll start this week with the Leveson Inquiry, which has finally opened its doors for business. And the fun and games will really begin next week when the likes of you know, J.K. Rowling and Steve Coogan and Hugh Grant and Charlotte Church and oh, even Anne Diamond all give evidence about how the press intruded into their lives. Still, we've already seen David Sherborne, the lawyer who's representing victims of phone hacking, as describing the actions of the fourth estate as devastating and intrusive and saying many in the press were guilty of a whole manner of tawdry practices. Well, James Robinson, media correspondent with The Guardian, was being in the High Court all week at the hearing following every last development. James, what have you made of it so far? I mean, it's fascinating. The Sherborne, David Sherborne, who's the QC for the uh, 51 quote-unquote victims of press intrusion and press you know, misbehaviour generally, really has stolen the show so far. I mean, this week he, he, he came and did a three-and-a-half-hour sort of soliloquy on just how dreadful the popular press is in this country and how they've ruined uh, you know, any number of lives from people who are victims of crime and famous people like some of those you just mentioned. I mean, that, that has been the, the, the event of the week, I think. It was difficult not to feel ashamed to be a journalist. Give, give me a couple of examples of some of the things he talked about. Well, he talked about, um, you know, Charlotte Church uh, being, you know, this Charlotte Church having her car door wrenched open by paparazzi so they could get pictures of you know upskirt pictures basically in so many words said that at least three people had either attempted or uh, attempted suicide or actually killed themselves he said as a result of press intrusion relatives of people like gary flickcroft the the footballer who um, was exposed for having an affair by the thing it was the people you know he 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 did say um, or Gary Flickoff felt that his father's uh, suicide, uh, that the press was a contributing factor to that. Frankly, there is no proof of that. The, the, the point is, you know, Sherborne made some very serious allegations, as you do, you know, he paint, painted the worst possible picture of the press. What he did really was distill the worst behaviour and excesses of the, the tabloid press over the last decade and, you know, into one three-hour speech. And I was quite impressed with Leveson, actually, who did make that point. He said, OK, well, you've painted a very graphic picture here, but, you know, there will be another side to the story. And, and I think we'll hear more of this next week. It'll be more powerful next week because we'll have the likes of the, th- the, the parents of uh, Millie Dowler and we'll have Steve Coogan and Hugh Grant and J.K. Rowling, whose privacy has been uh, allegedly, uh, you know, breached on many occasions. And it will be even more powerful. But I think, it, you know, I do, I almost felt sorry for the Mail and News International whose lawyers were sitting there unable to speak um, and respond to all this, this torrent of mm-hmm. disgusting behaviour that we're, we're being t- told about. Uh, you make an interesting point. Lord Justice Leveson so far from, from his aside and so on, I mean, yeah. one, one gets the sense that this is, uh, he, he's not turning up just to kind of say, uh, 
uh, to say, uh, oh, I respect the freedom of the press, and all we need to do is have a sort of light touch reform on the PCC no, and go away, lads. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, he, to him, isn't it? I mean, he actually said yesterday in court, I don't want to be a footnote to some media academics um, book in twenty years' time. I mean, he and he made the point, and he also made the point that this is an expensive exercise, and it's going to go on for a very long time, uh, enormous uh, cost to the public purse. We want to, you know, I, I really want to make this count. Um, so he is serious about this, and I was in, I've been very impressed actually. He's thoughtful, um, and you know, exchanges with in his exchanges with Alan Rusbridge, our own editor, the Guardian editor. He was um, he showed that he's been thinking deeply about exactly how the regulation of the press should change, and uh, which is you know we could get in the detail, we could get bogged down in detail, but it's essentially a sort of press complaints commission plus, you know, and maybe try and avoid libel cases coming to court by allowing the PCC to to uh, intervene. And what about what about this confusion as well? Because obviously Robert Jay, the QC to the inquiry on day one, said there were twenty eight News International executives named in Glenn Mulcair's notebook. And, he did say that, and that was our that was our and everyone's splash. Mm. And yet, I think the next day, and, and certainly the day after, that that seems to be in dispute. And has it now been withdrawn? What's the well, it's been of, clarified because yes, it, it, that's a good point. I mean, that was really remarkable news. There were there were there were there were sharp intakes of breath when Jay said that, made that point. They've now accepted that uh, following clarification from the from the met that those 28 names uh, not all of them can be uh, are definitely news of the world or news international journalists they they think around 20 of them probably are they could be working for any number of papers I theoretically I got you. It doesn't sound that impressive. They're kind of getting the figures wrong. But anyway, look, what's your assessment thus far? Do you think this is going to be a, a good inquiry in a useful process, or is this going to be a sort of a, a bit of exhibitionism and 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 lead? In, and ultimately, all Leveson can conclude is what probably you know four intelligent people could have thought off in a room. Well, I do wonder about that because there's not there's not. It's difficult. To, you either have. I mean, he said it's more nuanced than this. I'm not sure it is. You either have state regulation of the press, or you have self regulation of the press. I mean, I, I do. I do worry about what exactly you know how you can come up with a sensible solution that is neither of those things or a bit of both I mean, it's hard to it's hard to see uh, you know i think it's a serious guy and he's he's obviously uh, doing a serious job but i do i just i find it hard to find to, just just to imagine exactly what the solution will be but i think if you know they're certainly going to be talking to all the right people and making a good fist of it uh, so here with me in the pod, I have Paul Robinson, Managing Director of Kids Co TV, and the evergreen media reporter, the wonderful Maggie Brown. What an introduction. Fantastic. Obviously, I'm not evergreen. <laughs> no, now. Anyway, and let's have some more fun. And let's think about the joys of I'm a Celebrity. Christy Rock, Lorraine Chase, Willie Carson, hardly great for the teenagers. But maybe this is sort of future for television, Maggie. This sort of bringing on the bringing on the older talent. I seem to make a conscious choice to sort of step away from the X factor here. Uh, Absolutely, and I mean, you can see probably they've taken a little step or two out of uh, Strictly Come Dancing because clearly uh, Strictly has had a wonderful, is having a wonderful ratings run, and the people who actually do make up the core, boring though it may be, of uh, mainstream television audiences are the over fifties, people who sit at home and watch TV. Um, I actually think it's quite interesting casting, although I'm not really watching it uh, because there are other such. I think there's, I think this autumn is such a brilliant range of programmes that uh, I can't really be bothered to watch these um, kind of reality shows. But I, I am quite interested in the fate of Freddie Starr, I have to tell you. Well, yeah, poor, yeah, yeah, yes, poor Freddie getting a 
getting a pensioner to eat all those terrible things. Yeah. He's out of, now, isn't he? He's, he's out of the show he's now. Yeah, I he's think gone, he's been yes. too ill. I think yeah. ra- ra- rather poisoned by what he had. But, but again, Paul, I mean, are the broadcasters sort of uh, uh, belatedly waking up to something they should have woken up to several years ago, that actually the, the available audience, you know, it's older folks who, who watch TV and showing sort of older people in the right context is what viewers want. I'm not sure whether this is actually a strategic move to serve older audiences, whether it's actually the celebrities they could actually get. I mean, this looks to me like actually pretty much a sort of a C-minus list of celebrities, to be honest, who happen to all be about 40, 50 or a bit older. Uh, I mean, ITV has got to continue to bring in younger audiences, otherwise it's going to have a commercially negative impact on the business. You know, if they're just serving the 50-pluses, great that the 50-pluses are, um, it's going to have a commercial problem for them. You know, Fatima Whitbread has really come out, and she's the one who's getting everything going, and she's had... Uh, run-ins with uh, with Mark Wright, who clearly is young, you know, from anyway as Essex, he's in his 20s. Given the uh, mediocrity of the lineup, how strong the ratings are, and I think mm. that's the really interesting thing it's about this. It's still Anton Deck. 11. I mean, they're 5. still in their 30s, so yeah. you could argue that... You know, that but, always sort but, of brings but, in the biker grove. Just about. But even Anton Deck are looking a bit round on the middle. You know, just <laughs> the, the, the good life is getting to them. I, that, that may well be true. Maggie, do you think that I'm a Celebrity is sort of uh, taking over perhaps from X Factor as a sort of winter crown jewel for, for ITV? No, or I can don't. that never be so? No, I don't. I think the real problem is there just isn't Simon Cowell in, I'm a Celeb- in X Factor. And I think if he is oh, managed... No, if they, if they, sorry, if they manage to get him back uh, next year, then I think X Factor will probably steady itself. Otherwise, who knows? And they've got Dancing on Ice, of course, coming up after Christmas, which is another show which does yeah. rather tend to skew old. So there's been this sort of frantic chase or after, um, you might call the youth or the younger audience for oh. commercial reasons. But if you looked at ITV's third quarter results, uh, what you do see is this really very healthy uh, uh, growth in both advertising and audiences for their, th- their theme ch- or their demographically themed channels, two, three, four. So they do have that comfort now, which they didn't have even two or three years ago. Yeah. Paul, you've seen ITV, I think, saying revenue down 11% in December. Are, are, are tough times looming in sort of commercial television and commercial broadcasting? Are we now into sort of an economic, a bit of an economic chill? Well, I mean, look, you know, advertising does follow the economy, doesn't it? And with, with sort of GDP growth now uh, forecast at 1% only for this year, you know, confidence is hit and that does affect advertising budgets so you know if advertising suffers itv will suffer so i think yeah it's a it's a, it's a tough world out there and itv's got two problems it's losing share in total and the absolute market is not growing but dan i was at the um women in advertising uh dinner this week in london and uh, the, the the note was so gloomy about the outlook not just for december but for the whole of uh, 2012 mm. i was actually quite surprised because i had perhaps rather innocently assumed that we would be having a a bounce with the Olympics, and there was, uh, you know, a lot to, to think about, really, that, that people would cheer up. But uh, I was sitting on a table with uh, several advertisers as well as advertising people, and um, they they really believe consumer confidence is rock bottom, and that's the, the fact is that if people aren't spending anything and if people are pulling advertising forward for things like the Rugby World Cup, uh, there just isn't going to be anything left in the kitty. Right, we better cheer ourselves up. So, look, uh, <laughs> we've had some interesting news about Doctor Who uh, this week, or they were the BBC trying to tell us that the word is that I think David Yates, who directed some of the better Harry Potter films, is signed on to make a Hollywood version of the Time Lord's Adventures. Well, I don't know, sometime this century or next century, or maybe the Doctor's seen it already, I don't know. But do we think this is real, Paul? Will Johnny Depp play? 
fame, or is this a, is this a sort of a British, you know, a, a British franchise destined therefore for only a small audience internationally? Well, I think what was clever about Russell T Davies reimagining was he actually managed to take Doctor Who fans like me. You know, I, I watched it from the beginning in the mid sixties, and he also brought in a whole new generation. You see, young kids now have got Dalek toys and they've got Doctor Who models and love it. So fantastic! I see no reason why you can't make a really really good movie. I think the big debate about it is who actually plays the Doctor, and that is a clearly a hot topic. If you look on the blogs, you know there is a huge amount of debate about well, who, that. Come on, then uh, we'll have some, just, some suggestions from you. Oh, I'm not going to give you a suggestion, but I, let me draw a parallel. Let me draw a parallel. Right? Um, Star Trek. There's another fantastic franchise. Look at the brilliant reimagining by J.J. Abrams last year, using Chris Pine to play William Shatner's role mm. as Captain Kirk. That worked brilliantly. So I don't think it is impossible to find an actor. Don't know who it's going to be. I'm not a casting director. Find an actor who is going to really pull the fans together, but also is going to open Doctor Who to a broad audience. Come on, Maggie. Can it work as a film? And who who would you having play the doc- who would you have playing the Doctor? I think it will work as a film because uh, a lot of British good British uh, stories do adapt very well. Actually, we're just seeing War Horse, aren't we? I mean, that's I know at the other end of the spectrum, but we do have an ability. It seems to me to put forward ideas which become what you might call good family films. I've no idea who um, should play Doctor Who simply because if a lot of American money is going into this, then we don't actually have a say. And that's another one of the problems, really, for the BBC. I mean, it's their property. How much editorial control will they have? And how transatlantic or uh, American well, is it actually Well, his name, John Barrowman. Oh, it's John Barrowman, oh, of course. Finally squeeze a suggestion out of you. Um, yeah. um, uh, Maggie, would it be done by an, would it be done by an American, or maybe Daniel Radcliffe will be just about right? He might be old enough by then. Now, why don't we move on to a pretty extraordinary story of the week? Over, at, uh, meanwhile, over at Channel Four, uh, uh, Nick Hewer, Lord, Lord Sugar's right hand man on The Apprentice, and uh, actually someone I remember as a PR man, you'd ring up on the phone and ask sort of dreary financial PR questions about the state of Amstrad. Anyway, uh, 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 you know, uh, here he is. He's going to be the new presenter on Countdown instead of Jeff Stelling. Maggie, what do you think about that decision? Well, Jeff Stelling uh, was all right. Was and um, we've had sort of Des O'Connor. Sound very good, all right. All right. No, I mean it is a show that actually is looking for a, a real breath of reinvention. Uh, ever since, really, sadly, Richard Whiteley died. I mean, he was so identified with it, and then, of course, they, for, for commercial reasons, for cost reasons, they got rid of dear old Carol. And I think it has been wandering around, really. Uh, I, I, I actually like him. I like Hewer. Um, I've never dealt with him as a PR, but um, well, I mean, you've got to remember what is what is the countdown audience? It's basically, I'm afraid, I have to return to the subject of older people it is certainly pensioners plus uh, you students, know students surely, yes. so it's a mix and I know I you know it's a mix if you look at the, the demographics so it's whoever's there to view so he does tick a number of boxes because uh, younger viewers students do watch The Apprentice after all don't mm-hmm. they and yet uh, older people will definitely I think uh, find something in common with Hewer. so I think it's quite I suspect Jay Hunter's had a, a big hand in this because daytime is one of her big areas and daytime is really really crucial for Channel 4 and it's been so off the boil for the last three years uh, Sure Paul I mean won't Nick be a sort of bring a sort of rather cold uh, 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 sort of less friendly less uh, tone to, to Countdown a bit, bit like sort of an, as if Anne Robinson was doing the show It probably will but at least it won't be cheesy like uh, when Des was doing it so <laughs> yes. I, I think what's interesting about Countdown is I think the brand 
the countdown need to be bigger than the host. Yeah. And if you'd used someone like Wogan or Sue Barker, who were also touted, they inevitably would be dominant over the brand. Hewer, of course, is completely not that. I think he could be brilliant if they actually capture properly what Nick is brilliant at, which is those really weird, gurning facial expressions, the way the eyebrow goes up and a silly answer. You know, it could be fantastic. He doesn't need to actually say much. He can do it all in his face. The big challenge... Well, I was going to say, the challenge is can can he go go from, you know, being an aside where he's Mm. filmed and heavily edited to actually hosting a show? Has he got the performance skills? That's the big issue. And you have to do it, remember, they do about three back-to-back in a day. It's a sausage factory. It's a sausage factory. It's an imaginative, clever um, idea, and I hope it works. I think I applaud, actually, them going in this direction. Don't worry, Sir Paul, it's all fair use. Yep, it's the news that EMI, the legendary British music major, one of the biggest names in the music business, has been taken over by two of his largest rivals in deals worth two and a half billion pounds. Universal has slapped up EMI's recorded music business, home to likes of Coldplay, Katy Perry, and of course those Fab Four from Liverpool. While the company's music publishing division, that's the one that represents songwriters, includes the Motown back catalogue, has been sold to Sony. The deals mean that Universal will account for 38% of all recorded music sales worldwide and Sony will own the biggest catalogue of songs ever known. Paul, you used to work at Radio 1. The prospect of sort of four music majors turning into three, is that a good thing for the music business? Well, as um, a radio executive, what you want is diversity of supply. Uh, You want lots of companies competing because effectively the old policy used to be that pluggers would come into Radio 1, they'd play you stuff, and you'd actually make a decision on the playlist based on the choice from many, many companies. And there was an element of competition which helped produce hopefully the best possible output. What's happened is the world has changed. I mean, now there's music available in so many other ways. It's not just reliant on pluggers paid for by record companies. So in a way, it doesn't matter. What's more important is that EMI, with its roster of artists, has got a home where it's actually going to probably flourish as a label, uh, as opposed to struggling to the ridiculous Guy Hands era, where you know it's been full of nonsense for years and no one's got on with artist development or, or building the existing artists. So I think overall for radio, radio will continue to exercise editorial interest integrity and independence and it won't matter there's only three majors because they're talking to a whole lot of indies as well and the whole indie sector is now so much bigger than it was 20 years ago uh, i don't know maybe you've come across lucy and gray and she sort of talked a uh, wonderful sort of british-born chief executive of universal one of the first things he said is they'd save uh, save abbey road which are a bit under threat of being sold do you think it, do you think it matters that we're seeing another sort of uh, british uh, media giant sort of fall into the hands of overseas ownership Oh, I do feel concerned, and I was concerned about the division into two. And further, I mean, the thought of, I mean, the fate of companies like Cadbury is slightly in one's mind. Uh, the real problem is, I think, Guy Hans got his hand on it, hands on it for a hugely overinflated price, and um, it's been in a sort of no man's land, as far as I can tell, for the past three years. Um, so all I can say is it's one of those very sad British stories. We seem quite good at destroying our own very good cultural assets. But Lucien Grange is a fantastic executive. I mean, I I worked with him. I know him. He really does live and breathe music, and I think he will do a good job. I think think he's right. It was divided into two. Well, I I share your concerns there, to be honest, too. But I think the point is, Lucien Grange will use um, his skills to search for new British talent. The fact the ownership of the company is not British doesn't matter. It won't stop British talent coming through and getting signed. Yeah, Lucy, and of course, has Leslie Douglas uh, working on artist development. So he's very—he's he, certainly very good at—he's you know, certainly very good at picking up the talent. 
Um, Maggie, you've been running about TV training, I think, this week. So do you want to just tell us a bit about what's going on there and what the, what, what, what's on your mind? Well, I have indeed. Um, in fact, it's a story I've been pursuing for a couple of months. Um, and it is really, again, one of those rather British stories where we don't invest enough in training and then we moan about the fact that we don't have enough engineers, etc., etc. What I have been writing about is a report that um, has been compiled by Skillset, the, ind- the Creative Industries um, Training uh, Committee. And I know that body, we, I know we all get very bored when, you hear, when we hear the, the word training. But a couple of years ago, they came out with this quite shocking statistic that women were just exiting the TV production business. 5,000 mm-hmm. just disappeared because of the hours, because predominantly uh, independents uh, tend to uh, employ hire and fire uh, freelancers. Uh, what their latest uh, findings show is that the training... Uh, the amounts put into training, certainly by this ever-growing independent sector, is in decline. It hasn't matched their uh, improved fortunes at all. And their survey across both companies and individuals shows that 55% of companies are saying they can't actually uh, go ahead or, or they're having to delay business development plans, new products, new things, new ideas, because they don't have sufficiently trained talent or people to do it. And it goes across the sector. It isn't just uh, whether you're looking at production or you're looking at um, computer skills or it, 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 marketing. It's the whole thing. Maggie, is this in part due to sort of the, the, the gradual weakening of the dominance of the BBC in the sense that once you know people would sort of come into the BEEB and get trained and go through a sort of a, you know, a very sort of yeah. programmatic kind of career development, whereas now people are coming in the industry because they've you know done two weeks work experience um uh, for nothing uh, at an indie well i mean there is that point i mean that what the figures also show is that uh, the number of people working for free as interns is extremely high in the independent sector compared with the rest of broadcasting it's about 30 percent for all of broadcasting including the broadcasters it rises to well over 40 percent at independent producers which again is a very bad thing the bbc according to this report um is still accounting by some uh, accountancy firm, anyway, this measure, uh, for roughly £60 million of training Mm -hmm. uh, a year. That's what it says. But the independent sector, through the Independent Training Fund, is uh, basically not raising more than about £450,000 a year. Now, remember, this is a business that's a a, a sector that's turning over well in excess of £2 billion a year, 2.2 to 2.4. It also has exports, which rose last year 13% to £1.3 billion. So this is not a poor industry. And what is going on, and this is really, I mean, I I do find, there are thousands of people out there affected by this. Some of the big indies are training. They may be specifically training in-house. Nobody knows exactly what they're doing. But a lot of smaller independents do not seem to be paying up. Uh, Paul, do you think there's a problem here? There's a sort of deficit, if you like, in skills sort of creeping into the industry because folks aren't being trained enough? I think it's absolutely true. I mean, I was lucky enough to spend uh, a long time at the BBC and I you know, was the beneficiary of great training at the BBC. Um, I think it's a very strong reason for the BBC keeping the in-house production department. Um, you know, that's another argument for doing that. And I think Maggie's right. Um, the trouble is, in a recession, companies do look at training budgets and unfortunately finance directors put lines through training budgets and they shouldn't do. As you say, they are they are are well-funded, it's a big top-line number, and they need to be encouraged to invest more in training. The actual decline started in 2007 when the independent sector itself, PACT, lobbied to change the basis on which a levy was was Mm. raised. This is a sector that has an independent production quota of 25%, Mm. it it has out-of-London protection, it has the rights to its programmes granted to it under uh, the 203 Communications Act, it's got a lot of privileges, and I 
I would say if you have privileges, you should jolly well earn them. And I, they I are agree. not doing it. The trouble, in- is, the trouble is they're commercial companies, and unless there's some constraint on them, they will actually drive the bottom line and they'll, they'll avoid training if they can. If they're allowed to get away with it, they will get away with it. OK, listen, uh, thanks very much for your thoughts on that. And I think we're pretty much at the end of the show, so I'm sort of reminded of, uh, uh, of the... Uh, uh, Lord Hollick's kind and generous offer, the f- first one I think he's made in a long time, uh, uh, where he sort of offered £5,000 to secure a repeat broadcast of the Dennis Potter classic that's the singing detective, of course. Uh, however, apparently there are these some rules that the BBC has on and they, that they can't accept donations to pay for programmes, so it may prevent uh, Lord Hollick's offer being accepted. Anyway, I, I really wondered, uh, perhaps both of you, starting with you, Paul, would you, is there anything you'd pay money to have a repeat off on the BBC or somewhere else? Um, well, I'd definitely repeat to see the very page, to see the very first seasons of Doctor Who. So this is William Hartnell, just rounding full circle. William mm-hmm. Hartnell and Earthly Child, the first season, because they've lost some of the episodes. Oh, so they still have the tapes? No, they, well, that's so the point. The, they, they didn't the archive archive. them, probably. But early Doctor Who, I'd pay for that, no problem at all. Yeah, get them out of storage. <laughs> Maggie, what, what Well, I'm afraid I'm going to be a little, bit, a little bit more upmarket than this, I'm afraid. Um, I regard the 80s... That's a bit complimentary, you said. Uh, no, complimentary, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, good casting. Uh, no, I regard the 80s as one of actually the golden um, ages of television drama. And I would certainly like to see some of the Alan Bleasdale um, programmes again. I'm talking Boys from the Black stuff. Very which relevant one doesn't today, see. doesn't it? Yeah. It feels totally relevant today. Uh, but one of the things I really enjoyed from the 80s, which never gets repeated, is uh, it was a, a very interesting trilogy, The Fortunes of War. It was an adaptation of Olivia Manning's uh, novels about the Balkans in, in, in the Second World War. And it had Kenneth Branagh and um, his then um, uh, um, uh, wife, um, Emma Thompson. And I remember watching that, I think it was on every Sunday night, and really, really relishing it. If anyone's listening who can make that happen, let's see what we can do. And as for me, I just say, bring back Blake Seven. <laughs> Thank you, for, th- thank you very much to my sort of evergreen and radiant colleagues. And uh, you've listened to another episode of Media Talk. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.